0: You're listening to The Heavenly Chief Podcast, episode 19. Today, we're doing part one of different diets to help your patients. Hi everybody, I'm Fee Gitchum. And I'm Claire Pyers. Today, we're talking about various nutritional and diet approaches that your patients may benefit from. Over the next couple of episodes, we're going to work our way through gluten-free, dairy-free, good sugars, bad sugars, good fats and bad fats, paleo, autoimmune paleo, ketogenic diets, low histamine diets, and low tyramine diets, plus we'll have a look at a couple of cleanses, eating vegetarian or on meat eating organic or not and carbs and do you eat raw or do you cook the heavenly chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com you can add heavenly chi podcast to your favorite rss feed or itunes and you can also find us on stitcher you can also follow us on facebook All links are in the show notes, and we hope you enjoy today's show.
1: So welcome to today's show. Today we're going to be looking through a few different dietary approaches. We're going to try and get through as much as we can, but Faye and I often have a lot to say, a lot of different things to say about um, different nutritional approaches. So we'll start with gluten-free and um i guess is a big one it's huge <laughs> it's huge there's a, i mean gluten's everywhere it's definitely a very big part of the standard australian diet a mm. very big part of just the modern modern western diet um mm. it can be a very difficult component of the diet to avoid and um it's it's one that can make a really big difference for your patients to remove from their diet, particularly if there's any issues with um, with digestive problems, um, but there's also a lot of other things that can respond to having a low gluten or a no gluten diet.
0: Yeah, I think if anybody wants the summary version, my personal approach is don't eat gluten if you're a human. Um, <laughs> and I well, that really, counts me out. Yeah. <laughs> And I really like following gluten research because I think it's really tricky for the general public out there to discern whether or not they're meant to just avoid gluten if they have celiac or whether or not it's valid to have non-celiac related gluten issues, which is the new term for people who have non-celiac related gluten issues and a few years ago I found that there was a bunch of immunologists that were studying gluten for the first time as previously most of the research had been done by looking through the gastrointestinal system and the effects of gluten in the gut and when the immunology specialists started looking at gluten they found that gluten is a toxin to the blood brain barrier and well there's over 52 gluten proteins called gliadins that can trigger reactions from the immune system and the celiac protein is only one of them.
1: Mm. Yeah and I think that it's certainly very much of a narrow focus if we're only looking for measurable damage to the small intestine as a reason to not have gluten. Um, and, you know, it's, it's getting a little bit of a bad rap in some circles that it's a, you know, it's like a fad and it's like a, you know, posh people avoid gluten. But there's um, there's some actually some really interesting research that's been done by um, a man called Alessio Fasano. And um, I've had the pleasure of seeing him present at a couple of conferences. He has done a lot of work in, um, in looking at the way that gluten affects people who don't have celiac disease and um, and in particular he's looked at the way that um, gluten interacts with zonulin which is um, one of the main gateways I guess from the small intestine into the bloodstream and that there are two main things that cause um, that cause An abnormal increase in the levels of zonulin so gut bacteria so abnormal gut bacteria which is a whole separate episode um but but gluten causes zonulin Mm. levels to increase and so what that means is that if you're constantly having gluten day in day out that um that you're essentially giving yourself leaky gut Mm. and so these increased levels of zonulin what do they do So zonulin, yeah. So zonulin's like the doorway from the small intestine into your bloodstream, and so it's, I mean, it serves a purpose. It's useful to allow nutrients, the normal flow of nutrients from the small intestine, from what's been absorbed in, from what you've eaten, to Mm. go into the bloodstream. But having zonulin levels that are too high causes too much, Mm. too much opening, and too much goes through. And so I guess, you know, from a Chinese medicine point of view, we see people who've got maybe some mixed patterns of qi stagnation and constrained heat in the middle jaw, alongside a spleen deficiency and maybe some dampness, and it can become quite a knotted pattern for a lot of people. And um, certainly with people who have quite complex gut presentations, even just a very basic approach of going gluten-free for a few weeks can clear up a lot of those um, complicated
0: symptom presentations. Mm. So the immunology research that I was looking at a couple of years ago, which was presented in the world's first annual gluten summit, which you can actually download online, you can download all of the webinars and lectures from that summit, and some of them are with the immunologists that did the research and others are with nutritionists and so forth. But what they were looking at was that if your immune system is responding to one of these multiple gluten proteins or gliadins, then it can actually take up to six months for the immune system to stop responding to the gluten mm. and I've had so many patients who've said well I, I didn't have gluten for two weeks and it didn't change anything so I don't believe it's that and just going through that information with them I found has really helped people actually commit and be compliant and try it for a really decent amount of time mm. and then just looking back at well if they're in the leaky gut category or that spleen uh, TNT isn't working properly from China's med perspective then it's the size of the gluten molecules that the gut has an issue with because they're too big. And when I look at that from a simple perspective, and I think so the human digestive tract can't actually deal with the size of this molecule, it would say to me, well, then this is not a human food. Mm. This is not meant to be a food for humans. And I, and I recall in the research that they were saying about they tested a, a thousand or more people in Europe and... About 30% of the people who had noticeable symptoms from gluten had digestive symptoms. Another 30% had non-digestive but systemic symptoms, which could have ranged from mental health through to um, arthritis inflammatory. Arthritis is a really common yeah, one. Yeah, say arthritis and inflammatory systemic and, and psychological symptoms. And then another I think it was around about another thirty percent that didn't really have very strong symptoms, but still everybody overall had quite measurable increases of health and IQ and emotional well being on all of their reports and and these were people that they had over a thousand people that did go gluten free for six months. And so what was really interesting to me was that the average IQ jump across all of the people was 10 points, which is quite significant.
1: Wow. So we can become smarter if we stop eating gluten.
0: Yeah. And if we look in the brain, what does gluten do and why is it so hard to get people to stop eating it? It's really emotional. So the gluten attaches to the same receptor as heroin and morphine. Mm -hmm. And if we look at what does it do, you have a big carby, gluteny meal, and you you really get to kind of tune out, and relax, like have a pizza in front of the movie, <laughs> and this really calms people down, and it gives us a, a certain type of satiated feeling, um, and it also constipates, and that's pretty much what morphine and heroin do, except in a far stronger dose. So in a way, we're we're sort of used to being medicated by this type of diet. And when we remove it, everybody reports higher vitality and, and clearer thinking and like higher IQ. Mm-hmm. And I found that really inspiring, um, has been a great reason to inspire certain patients of mine who don't have really noticeable symptoms from gluten but they're really aiming for optimum health or they're athletes in that, in that kind of zone of treatment. Mm-hmm.
1: One of the things I find really interesting about gluten is um, when you look at the, the way in which, um, in particular, the wheat plant has evolved due to intensive farming practices in the last 100 years in particular. And there is some research that indicates that, particularly in Australia um, and as far as I know in America, with what we do with our wheat crops, and the way that we grow them and the types of seeds that we use and the way that that's kind of been bred into the seeds now is that the gluten content um, is extremely high. And so um, there are a lot of people who um, don't have any problems with eating, say, for instance, pasta or bread if they're going to Europe, but if they're having pasta and bread in Australia, then they have problems. And we have a much higher gluten content in our um, in our bread and cereal products here in Australia, Um, and that certainly causes some problems. But I think, um, you know, as you say, there are people who have systemic reactions or even more um, subtle health impairments as a result of gluten that they're not necessarily aware of or they don't necessarily see the link because they're not getting bloated or getting gassy or getting cramps after having bread or pasta. Um, And some people can get away with having things like spelt sourdough. Um, The fermenting, I think, also changes the way that the gluten interacts. But um, for those people that can tolerate it, I generally suggest to not have it too often.
0: Yeah, and to go for organic as well. Um, And there, you know, I've also read that um, as a grain, why is wheat cooked? causing us more trouble in general than a lot of other grains and there are also a lot of grain-free diet approaches coming. So it's not just gluten, it's just don't have grains and we'll get onto those. But as a grain, wheat absorbs 10% more nitrates from pesticides than other grains in general. That's a very averaged out figure. Um, so I suspect also that we're changing the, the chemical structure through non-organic farming techniques mm. i remember we were having a discussion that if you have organically grown wheat according to the ancient traditional methods from the south of italy where they've made pasta for a long time that is going to have less effect on you than if you're having just the mainstream brands pasta or breads from the supermarkets in australia grown with pesticides
1: yeah and a lot of um
0: there's some interesting
1: information coming out now about glyphosate toxicity so um, one of the main pesticides that's used, sometimes called Roundup, um, and that some of the symptoms of glyphosate toxicity are very similar to those that are associated with celiac disease. And so that's mm-hmm. even more of an argument to be removing that as a potential factor. Um, I think, interestingly, just before we wrap up on talking about gluten... <laughs> let's <laughs> We could keep going. We could go all day. <laughs> but... um I mean, some of our herbs contain gluten, and so we're looking at um, herbs like Fu Xiaomai, which is a really great um, Shen Karma, and so that kind of links in with that idea of um, with gluten affecting the opioid receptors mm. in the brain. Mm. Um, we've got Yi Ren, which, you know, there's, it, it's debatable. Some people say, oh, it doesn't contain gluten, and some people say
0: it's such a ne- negligible, amount, negligible amount. Yeah, it's like oats. Yes, yeah. borderline as well, um, and then shu d if it's made a particular way.
1: Yeah, I think so if if it's made with the rice wine, that it's okay, but gluten if it's, free. But if it's the barley wine, yeah,
0: yeah, then
1: it contains some gluten.
0: Mm.
1: There's lots to look into if you've got celiac patients, or even if you know if you're concerned in general for more of your patients than just your celiac patients, which hopefully. After listening to today, you might have some further thoughts about what you're advising with gluten, your patients. Yeah. Um, it's definitely worth looking into your herbal medicine and checking out with your suppliers to find out what um, process your shooty goes through.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning that gluten hides in a lot of other foods, not just breads and pastas um so learning how to read labels and mm. learning how to guide your patients on how to read labels or even just finding a good resource online yeah. that you can share with them to do that um so when something's got you know uh like flour added as a thickener or something and it might be a sauce or, mm. or soup like or that. yeah yeah So, that's gluten's going to be hiding in there. And I just wanted to go back a little bit to the emotional difficulty of becoming gluten free, especially when people Mm. are addicted in that neuroreceptor kind of level. Um, Usually, what comes up for them is, oh, but something stressful happened and it's my comfort food. And, or a certain amount of stress will build up and then they'll start to crave that type of food. And what's actually happening is they're craving the medication aspect of it in the neuroreceptors. So I always like to help people understand before we do any kind of diet or eliminating foods that they're used to that emotional issues are going to come up and to just be aware of that before they go into it. So often just having that conversation makes them feel stronger and more able to tackle it when they go through it. Like okay, so at a certain point, if things get stressful, I'm probably going to start craving these foods that I'm meant to be cutting out. But if I can just hang in there, even for 48 hours, Mm. um, my neurochemistry will adjust, and I'll feel better, and it will be worth it.
1: Yeah, and maybe put some ear seeds in, or you know, give them a shen calming mixture that they can have on you know as needed. Yeah, over that time, I find that that's useful as well. People feel like they want to be doing something. Mm -hmm. that's um, going to be helping their mood
0: yeah I mean you can't really give anything up unless you've actually decided that you you're done with it yeah there needs to be a line in the sand
1: (laughs) and usually you know people are coming to see us they're suffering for you know from Mm. something and so usually there's some motivation particularly in the early stages of treatment to Mm. really um knock some of these things on the head.
0: Oh, and a little bit about pathology testing. If you want to, if a patient wants to test, then as far as I know at this point, the most advanced lab test for some of those 52 gliadins in the world is the Cyrex Array Lab in America, and they can only test for nine of these proteins. Mm. So I often suggest to people, save your money, don't test, just don't eat it. Yeah,
1: I (laughs) think it's a real trap. Um, One thing I will say is that often people go gluten-free and they end up replacing all of their gluten products with highly refined and processed non-gluten products. Yeah. And they're getting a lot of additives, you know, xanthan gums and potato starch and cornstarch. Um, and just other cheap
0: flowers. Yeah, okay. corn
1: is a very, um, is molecularly similar to gluten and there is cross-reactivity for about 30% of people yes. that have um, gluten problems. And so often if I'm saying to someone, you're saying goodbye to gluten, that they also need to say goodbye to corn. Mm-hmm. And generally just going for a diet, you know, a, a clean diet of veggies, fruit, meat, eggs, fish, and, you know, and some rice, if you're not doing grain-free, that um, rice and quinoa are okay. But, yeah, staying away from bread substitutes and pasta substitutes as much as possible too because that increase in processed foods or shifting from one processed food to another sometimes prevents the person from feeling well soon enough. And I think that's where some of the problems come from when people say, oh, I went gluten-free and I didn't feel any different, is because they just still eating stuff out of a packet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when they say, what do I eat? And you say vegetables and they look at you confused. (laughs) (laughs) You have to talk for another five or 10 minutes. Okay. Uh, Shall we move on? Yes. Or else we'd just have a whole episode on gluten. Right. So let's talk about dairy. To go dairy free or not. I used to be more against dairy than I am now, I prefer certain types of dairy. Mm. I like always organic butter, yep. cooking with ghee. Yep. I find those usually do really well for a lot of people and they're yep. such healthy fats. Yeah, really, really good f- source of vitamin A yep. as well and vitamin K. Right, and, and hormone builders yep. because of the fats. And ghee is great for cooking, so I usually suggest to people have you can, unless they are properly allergic to all dairy. Yeah, have some organic butter that when you put it on things without heating it, and if you're going to cook with it, use the ghee.
1: Yeah, I tell so dairy for me. A lot of people say, you know, what are your thoughts on dairy? And I'm like, you know what? I'm not against it. I think it's a very, it's a very dense and nutritious food, um, and so therefore, it's not applicable for everybody. Um, the only hard and fast rule that I've come across um, since I've been in practice is that if anyone has any problems with sinuses, then they need to cut out dairy. They may be able to tolerate butter and ghee. They may not be able to, but I'm yet to find someone who has problems with their sinuses that isn't caused entirely by or exacerbated by dairy intake. It's usually cheese and yogurt and... Um, you know, they can all be good quality and they can all be organic, but um so, you know for a lot of these people it's um the dampness of of the dairy products is just too overwhelming for the spleen, and then you get that dampness kind of festering in the nose mm-hmm. lingering and causing problems with sinuses
0: yeah, and there are so many great alternatives except for the margarines, which are terrible oh,
1: yeah, so margarine is shocking. <laughs> you need to if you know anyone that has margarine in their fridge, go around to their house right now and throw it out. <laughs> <laughs> if you love someone you will throw out their margarine.
0: <laughs> and if they are dairy free, make sure they're not using the Nutilex and all those other yeah. margarines. So either they're using straight up oils like olive oil, um, or they can tolerate a little bit and cook with ghee and so forth. Yeah, but you
1: want to stay away from hydrogenated Hydrogenated fats—if um, you things that are not meant to be solid at room temperature should stay not solid at room temperature. Yeah, you, you don't want to chemically change things so that they, you know, fit into a nice packet and it spreads easily on your toast. You know, and that and that kind of goes hand in hand. The whole gluten and dairy you putting you know, butter on your toast. Mm -hmm. But if you're going gluten-free, then you might also be going dairy-free and so then you don't need to butter your toast anymore.
0: Yeah, and if you're not aware of margarines and how they're made and how they're basically hydrogenated plastic, um, you can Google that and you'll find lots of shocking... (laughs) <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for you. Yeah.
1: And we'll put it on our Facebook page.
0: Yeah. And so you were talking about combining the dairy and the gluten. I call this the trifecta of suffering if you then add in processed sugars. Yeah. Yep. That's a good one. So you've got the gluten, the dairy, and the processed sugar. So a lot of desserts come under the trifecta of yeah. suffering category. And it's an interesting um, – an interesting –
1: Topic to explore as well is the idea that, uh, that fat and sugar don't come packaged together in nature. And so that when we do have fat and sugar together, like if we're having ice cream or we're having cakes and biscuits, that it does, it does unexpected things to our biochemistry or that we're not necessarily like we're starting to be able to adapt to it obviously but um, some of us better than others but it's not something that um, our bodies are necessarily set up to be able to deal with well
0: yeah it's a really good way to slow down your metabolism and gain weight easily and um, feel really tired after eating is to combine your fats and sugars but not all sugars are bad Mm. not all fats are bad So I I always like to give my patients a bit of a list of these are the good sugars, these are the bad sugars, and these are the good fats, and these are the bad fats. And if you only eat the good sugars and the good fats, and you just have a couple of hours in between them, you will probably naturally lose weight, um, and your whole metabolism system will adjust as long as there's no other presence of other serious disorders affecting the metabolism yeah um so yeah good sugars bad sugars my list is the good sugars include fresh fruit the sugars that you're going to get in your vegetables like carrot and pumpkin if you didn't know even mushrooms have good sugars and your body needs these to work and raw organic honey and a little bit of maple syrup. Maple syrup can be a little higher in the GIs, but it's not as high as cane sugar, and it's quite delicious, so sometimes that's a good solution for people. Um, And those are the good sugars. And then the bad sugars are cane sugar, high fructose corn syrup, and any other processed sugar. Agave Yeah, I've put agave in the bad category now. Yeah. It used to be in the good one, but I don't believe the hype anymore. Mm. Yeah. And the agave quality control is a big question, so there's another reason.
1: I put fruit juice in the bad sugar category. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless you're eating the whole fruit all together as a package with all the fiber and all of the other all of the other structural bits, Yeah, I think that it's it becomes quite damaging and very few people would be able to sit down to a meal and have, you know, have a full meal and then eat six apples as well. And that's essentially what you're doing if you're having a glass of apple juice with a meal. Mm. Um, It's far better for you to have the added fibre and all of the, the pectins and so forth that come naturally in fruits rather than, loading up with fruit juice
0: I agree and the same with dried fruits so usually I advise just eat the raw whole fruit and have it on its own about two hours away from other meals I think that's also relevant to the do I juice or do I blend Mm. discussion (laughs) I'm a fan of blending because you get the whole food yeah but we will do that later (laughs) Mm -hmm. and as far as going and
1: talking about fats there are still so many people who are caught up in that old 80s thinking of fat is bad, fat makes you fat, and low-fat diets are just so detrimental, They're so detriment- particularly for women, particularly for women of reproductive age. It's very damaging to hormonal health to um and for men as well but particularly for women um, can be very devastating for their reproductive
0: capacity if they've been on a low low fat diet for a long time Mm. and then the products that have been modified to be low fat Mm. then those products are no longer whole i was thinking about the the fruit when you eat the whole fruit you're getting the yin and the yang for the fruit yes and so, when we juice or we separate parts out, we're not getting the whole yin and the yang. So we're mm. getting an imbalanced chi.
1: Yeah, it's like with milk. If you're having organic milk, then have organic milk. Don't have organic low-fat milk. It's like, mm. what did you do to my milk to take the fat out? And you've also then taken out the fat, soluble vitamins, vitamin A, D, E, and K, and all of those. Um, all of those vitamins have anti-inflammatory properties they have metabolism supporting properties and so you're removing some of the benefits of having the food by taking out the fat
0: right and if we look at milk being a really dense nutrient designed for a a baby cow who's going to double its size in a short period of time and has four stomachs (laughs) which we don't have and we're not trying to to achieve um, then removing those vitamins and fats which actually makes the milk more tolerable to your body Mm. is quite silly but there's a lot of great milk alternatives these days too yeah
1: oh and one thing we didn't talk about the biggest objection that people have when you say you know going off dairy oh my god where am I going to get my calcium from my bones are going to disintegrate
0: if I don't eat my three serves of dairy a day Uh uh-huh and this is a myth yes because one capsicum one green capsicum contains more calcium than a glass of milk, really, yes, wow, see so you, you you're, all your calcium is in your green veggies, mm, there you not go. all of it I knew but yeah, I knew there's it. a lot of calcium yeah. in there, but I didn't think it was
1: that much, that's a lot, yeah, mm, yeah,
0: I used to know a lot of these things because I used to be vegan, and I had to defend myself all the time. <laughs> I'm no longer vegan, but I'm very cheesy. Yeah.
1: yeah. But definitely broccoli is very high um, mm. in calcium, almonds. Sesame um, seeds. Yep. Yeah. Um, stay away from soy if you can, even though it's really high in calcium. It's yeah. um, bad for other reasons, and we might yeah. talk about that later.
0: Yeah, I would caution against the rice milk and the soy milk. Yeah. They're just uh, – well, the rice milk's very sugary.
1: And I think it's – calcium carbonate that's added in and it's a poorly absorbed form of calcium
0: yeah um and then soy can be problematic for different age groups and hormone profiles bony fish are really
1: really good source of calcium so Mm -hmm. if you like anchovies if you like um sardines white bait all those little fish krill if you um head down to your local market get them fresh on a saturday morning and cook them up they're just beautiful He's making faces at me, but they're really nice. Tin sardines really have just, I think, given such a bad name to what is what can be such a wonderful fish.
0: I'm pulling my cat food face. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm sure your cat's got great bones. Does, it, does yeah. your cat have
0: milk? No, no, no. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> he gets all the good organic seafoods. Yeah, and so forth,
1: and of course, bone broths. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're making your own bone boss, use organic bones um so that you're reducing the amount of um, bad stuff that can be in there. but you're getting um you know you're getting very absorbable forms of nutrients and all of the other cofactors that support bone growth and bone density like collagen and and so forth.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good segue into the paleo topic, but before we go there, can we just go back a little and suggest what kind of patients we need to look at the sugars and the fats for? Oh, yeah. So um, I think goose syndrome is really relevant to yeah. the sugars here as well as all the emotional factors we were talking about with gluten and, and those kind of diet, poor diet addictions. Cane sugar is really addictive. And there's a lot of studies around that that you can look up, and it really messes up your gut bacteria. Yeah. It's not going to feed the good guys or the good guys won't be able to keep up with the the rate of feeding of the bad guys and then so many things are going to suffer when your gut bacteria is not doing well
1: absolutely um any anyone with any hormonal disruption um so estrogen and sugar are not very good friends um sugar promotes the proliferation of the aggressive type of estrogen so Mm. i can um promote the development of blood
0: stagnation particularly in the
1: pelvis for women
0: fibroids um, yep blood stagnation masses mm,
1: yep um, cysts and yeah um, yeah so women who have heavy or um, clotted painful periods um, anyone who's trying to fall pregnant, anyone who's trying to optimize their hormonal
0: health even period pain from inflammation so yeah. our, our main inflammatory foods. Would be the gluten and the the sugars, the bad sugars.
1: Yeah, and someone who has a really bulky di, really big belly um, that's disproportionate to their mm. hip, to their hips. Um, that's a sign that there's um, that that they need to get sugar mm. out of their diet.
0: And that's an oestrogen place to fat, oestrogen uh, dominant place to load fat yes yeah Yeah, even in men even in men little belly or the little or the big belly pad yes
1: men who have big bellies um measure lower testosterone levels
0: Mm. interesting and then we also have people who have had breast cancer or other types of estrogen dominant cancers yeah um thyroid problems or it runs in the family and so they don't want to get those cancers so yeah. yeah Uh, there's a lot out there about sugars. There's really not many reasons to be eating sugar. No, especially when you can have yummy fruit and organic raw honey, which is very medicinal, um, obviously not in excess. Yeah. But, yeah, there's, there's the sweetness of life. What do you say to
1: diabetic patients who say, oh, but if I have a hypo, I have to have jelly beans next to my bed or I have to have a Mars bar or orange juice?
0: Yeah, I think that one is really tricky, and I definitely don't want to interfere with what's working for them when they arrive to see me until I've been working with them for a while. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there are other things to fix in the diet before I'm going to uh, suggest that they try something different for those situations because those situations are quite acute. Mm-hmm. And if it's working, then it's not the place where I'm going to start, but I will eventually get to that place. And usually I find that if they need a Mars bar to fix their hypo, they're probably not using their insulin properly Mm. or the rest of their diet is also incorrect. Yeah. And so when you correct the diet properly and then they will be adjusting the way that they need to use their insulin, Mm. um, then you find that the, the Mars bar technique falls by the wayside.
1: I agree. I think there's, um, particularly in the early stages of working with patients who are on insulin, that um, that you definitely need to be um, having them being monitored and having their dosage adjusted. Usually their insulin requirement will drop within a very short period of time of them commencing treatment and making changes to their diet and so forth, and that's... helps to prevent the high pose.
0: Mm. And what do you think of the suggestion for diabetics to be on a low-fat diet?
1: I don't know. It just sounds a bit silly to me. <laughs> <laughs> I have not heard of that. I just think that, um, mm. yeah, that's the first I've heard of it.
0: Yeah, so it's usually within the standard um, advice given.
1: Oh, but then they're also told to eat bread and pasta and, like, they're told to eat a very high Carb. GI high-carb diet. And, um, I don't find that that works well for anyone. Mm. I usually tell all of my patients to ignore the advice that they get from their diabetic nurse. Mm. And, um, they all end up with far better glycemic control with their diet by following, um, a low starch, low carb diet, not a, not a zero carb diet, but getting, um, low GI carbs from vegetables Mm. and fruit, um, and less, less carbs from grains, mm. um, and to have more good fats because they've got inflammation and so they need the, yeah. the fat to um, to support the cellular repair. Mm.
0: I think also that the advice being given to diabetics is beginning to improve in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, there's um, apparently so some endocrinologists in Sydney who've got their entire um, diabetic wards in hospitals on, um, on low-carb diets. Great.
0: Yeah, because So this, 10 years ago the, yeah. the handout sheet that they were being given from the dietitians was, you know, it was terrible. It was all carbs yeah. um, and low-fat. And there's another way that you can time your carbs, especially if your blood sugar is an issue, um, with exercise. Yep. And so that is if you have your carbs either right before or within uh, two hours of, of having done the exercise – then your body's gonna handle those carbs in a lot more productive and healthy way.
1: Yeah, well it gets converted into glycogen and goes into the yeah. muscles and so that's you've done exercise, so you've stimulated um, you know, you've moved some dampness and you've stimulated the spleen by, you know, strengthening the flesh and then you're putting in some um some sweet flavours as most of the carbs have a sweet nature to them and so you're mm. replenishing the strength of the spleen by doing it that way
0: yeah yeah and having protein every four hours or so yeah protein's a real stabilizer and it's a real stabilizer for the neurochemistry as well for the shin all right so should we talk
1: about um should we just wrap up the um the fats
0: yeah, I think we'll wrap up the fats. We're over half an hour already, and then we'll let you know which diets we'll be talking about in part two.
1: Um, so, when we're talking about good fats, do you? So everyone is going crazy at the moment over coconut oil. Mm-hmm. What do you? What are your thoughts on coconut oil?
0: Yeah, you know, I think I think coconut oil is fine. Um, I use it myself. I probably am not as crazy about it as everybody because I seem to have a coconut threshold.
1: Mm, I do too.
0: And I feel even I, I don't really like eating coconut flesh. It makes me feel a little queasy and I don't really know why but I, sort of, I suspect that that's a good indication to me not to have too much coconut stuff. So even the coconut yogurt I love. Um, coconut oil I'll cook in sometimes but I probably use ghee more often. Um, Or I just steam things and then I add oils or fats after. I use things like tahini or olive oil. Um, And the coconut water I really like as well. But, again, it's a sweet drink and Mm -hmm. it's not something that I would have more than a certain amount of every day. But it's a really great source of electrolytes and really hydrating. So it's nature's. Gatorade, it's what Gatorade wishes it was <laughs> um and i and I do remember as well hearing that if you were on a desert island somewhere and someone was bleeding out and you couldn't do a blood transfusion, but you could get coconut into their veins um coconut water mm. into their veins that that would be harmonious for the body and possibly save their life, so
1: yeah I've heard that too it's sort of there's part of it that sets off my bullshit detector and so I'm. <laughs> I don't know, like if that was all that was there and I was really going to die, then, you know, give it a go. But, yeah, I don't know about that. It sounds like yeah, it, it may or may not be true. I'm sure some of our listeners will set us on the right path.
0: Yeah, so we're not um, saying we know about that, but that I've heard. <laughs> so in terms of coconut oil, it has some really great great qualities and if someone um, doesn't seem to have a coconut threshold or any coconut reactions, then I think it's a good choice. Um, but obviously you can overuse anything, mm. you yeah. know. So you don't want to be having too many fats in your day, but you don't want to be having too little fats in your day. Yeah. And you don't want to just be having one fat. Mm. You, need, you need a variety. Um, but coconut has some um, antifungal and antimicrobial properties. And it's used a lot in the raw food scene, mm, where yep. um, it it has it's just used in a tiny little bit might be added to foods because of those properties. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's also um, a little bit, and we'll probably cover this a little bit more in the paleo section next week. But um, there's also people who are talking about using um, rendered animal fat. So if you're making your bone broth and then you're, um, keeping that layer of fat on the top, once it's solidified in the fridge, then that's, you know, you've got your beef tallow that you can then use as a, um, as a stable heat, a heat stable Mm. fat that you can use for your, uh, for your cooking. And it reminds me of being, um, when I was really young that my, um, my mum and my grandmother both used to cook with, with dripping. Yeah. So they'd keep the, um, they'd keep the, the meat juices and, um, and pour it off and keep it in the fridge. And that that was all that they cooked with until margarine became really trendy in the eighties. Yeah. Oh, cringe factor. But, um, but yeah, that's a far better, um, <laughs> a far better thing to cook with and to use than, yeah. than to, um, than to be using horrible fats like margarine and that olive oil in sprays like don't use the spray can oils oh my god they just just don't use them (laughs) (laughs) so
0: friends don't let
1: friends eat margarine and friends don't eat don't let friends use spray oils (laughs) throw out that that's
0: yeah get a nice brush And do the master chef where you brush your oils onto the. Yes. So I think with fats, we really need to know, are we going to eat this fat or oil raw or are we using it for cooking? Mm. And when it comes to cooking, my list of recommended fats and oils is quite short. Yeah. It's ghee, coconut oil or a rendered animal fat that's organic and, you know, is quality rather than some Um, non-organic tub of lard. Yes, yeah. And you don't want to reuse these and reheat them Mm. several times. You want to use a fresh batch. Uh, And you really want to be aware of your cooking technique and the smoke point. Mm. Yeah. So when you take your fats or oils over the smoke point, they become carcinogenic Mm. and it's all unhealthy from there.
1: What about rice bran oil?
0: Some people say that
1: rice bran oil is heat stable to a certain temperature and they put that in that list, but you don't.
0: Yeah, uh, I used to. I'm, I'm not going to comment on that because I'm actually not up to date with knowing about rice bran oil because I've I've found that you can cover it with the others and they taste better.
1: Yeah. I'm a, I'm a little suspicious of rice bran oil. I think it kind of snuck in there mm. somehow on a technicality. Yeah, I think it's a very unusual
0: oil to be using. Mm. It does have a higher smoke point, but I'm not sure that it actually has other beneficial factors, whereas mm. the ghee and the coconut oil and oh, the... ghee is
1: great. And it heals the, the gut. Yeah. Why wouldn't you use it?
0: Yeah. you can, I even heard an Ayurvedic bit of advice that you can put a little dab of ghee in your belly button straight onto Ren8. Oh. And your body absorbs it right in there, and that's your original scar as yeah. well. Um, Renate is such a potent point to put nutrients on. Yeah, I love um, it. Yeah. I love that idea. So it does melt and start to dribble down your belly, be warned. I've tried it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and then uh, oh, I was just going to mention a little bit about fats that, and oils that I use that I don't heat. Mm. So for me that would be the olive oil or the yeah. sesame oil um and tahini and sesame seeds and organic butter and yeah yeah, yeah. cheeses yeah i think they can have a little bit of heat, and cheese a
1: little bit yeah you can mm. put a little bit of goat's cheese into an omelet in the last couple of yeah you know the last 30 seconds and it kind of oozes and yeah that's
0: really nice and that's another good fat as well as the eggs yes the eggs. and the chicken skin yes the skin eat the
1: skin on your chicken yes if it's an organic chicken
0: hmm. but well, yeah
1: we don't need to you know and you can have the wings and the thighs you don't have to only have the breast hmm. um you know it have the make use of the full animal
0: okay so today we've covered gluten-free dairy-free sugars and fats the trifecta of suffering <laughs> And uh, if we're going to do part two and possibly part three of this topic as well, because we've got a lot of diets here. So in part two, we'll move on to the paleo and then the autoimmune paleo, ketogenic diets, low histamine and low tyramine diets. And we're also going to look at different type of cleanses, um, a fruit cleanse for the lymph system, to be vegetarian, vegan, eat meat, or how important is it to eat organics? and how do you know how many carbs to eat as well as do you cook or or raw? And then how do we work with all of this as Chinese medicine practitioners and surely are? Mm. So making sure that within all of these choices we're able to weave through thermal natures, seasonal appropriateness, and the actual combination of foods and flavors and colors that are selected for a whole meal. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you and uh, send us your comments, your questions, your agreements, your disagreements and what you think. See you next week.